are reviewed but not read by yours truly. My name is Kaki. And I'm Kay. And remember, we only judge a book by its cover. We find ourselves once more in uh, uh, in your library. I'm growing increasingly comfortable sleeping on the floor here. I've made a nice pillow out of some of the softer hardcovers, paradoxically. The easy reading material also makes for great bedding. Yeah, I find it, I find it very comfortable. Um, it is getting a little bit colder as the winter months are upon us. I wonder if there is anything that I might be able to use for kindling to warm myself. No, I can already I see that that's see a bad idea. Smoke damage to books is not a good thing. Okay, so I know that it isn't, but doesn't it add an air of cachet, an air of class to have a... I mean, you have the leather-backed armchairs that we that we talked about previously. Right. You know, if, if, if you say a book that it survived the fire of the great library of Alexandria, then yes, that adds a certain dimension. Right. If it's just the paper book back uh, of uh, Amazon, then smoke and fire and water damage is not a selling point. Okay, I understand. I understand that it's a lot to ask. Can I try one more argument on you? By all means. You have 900 copies of Fahrenheit 451. Yes. So, what would be more sublime than lighting 899 of them on fire? They're all different editions. But they're... Yeah, it's but a collect, they're collector's items. No, they're reprints, translations, some have personal annotations. No, I can't miss any of those. No, of course, yeah. it's, it's it's still your library. You and can cuddle up with a cat if you like. We have yet to reach a detente, but I'm, I'm, I'm working on it. Today's book. Yes! I have it over here. It is by Eric Frank Russell. All three of them. All three of them. Three gentlemen work together to, to write one book for us. Oh, Well, I think Eric is not more of a friend of the family than an actual brother. Oh, yes. Mom's new friend. Mm, yes. And the, and, the, and the surname is Silent. Yes. Okay. Four letters. None of them are pronounced. So the title of the book, also four letters, Wasp. I was very excited when you when you proposed this because it looks like a proper old-fashioned boys' adventure, which is pretty much what it is. It's not boys, but it's it is written in that same style. You know, yeah. Edith Blyton would have been jealous if she lived long enough to be able to read this. Now, obviously, I know this, but maybe for the readers at home, which one was famous? She, famous from the five, uh, the five, the series? five. Oh, the f- oh yeah, no, I've actually read those. They yes. had the. Spaceship. Have you been going through the Pornhub comments? Well, <laughs> since Tumblr shut down, I've got to go somewhere. So, um, the cover. Well, I think it's more of a mishmash, just a few elements thrown together. Yeah, I had some problems identifying it as well. And also, by the way, for the uh, uh, readers at home, if you look on your podcasting device right now, you should, should be seeing the cover of today's book. And if not, check the show notes for an image or a link. We see, of course, our hero, Blake Whitecock. Now, yeah. I am a huge Blake Whitecock fan, so I was delighted that you that you picked one of the very early uh, volumes in which this beloved, beloved and problematic character first appeared. Yes, it's definitely not the first age-wise for, for Blake. He's clearly a little bit later on in his career in this book. While still and maintaining the, the, the thrill of the boy's adventure, but absolutely. for a, a more mature baby boomer generation. Right. On the front of the cover, you can see various jets, which are clearly from the 571 squadron. They're not all the same jet, but I think that might be artistic liberty on the... Uh, really? Because, look, the, the, the front two, the very forward one, has knobbly bits on the what I think is the jet, and the other one doesn't have on uh, the jet and the... And yeah, the, and this one's clearly got ramjets or more of a the rocket, wi- rocket... Yeah, ramjets, that's the one. I was, look, I was just testing you. Yeah. And the windshield yeah, is closer to the front. That's, yeah, well, that's that one's got the windshield in and the nose, which is always weird. You I mean, you see that in bombers, but not in jets. Yeah, really. that's, that was my thought too, Whereas, bombers. Yeah, yeah. Where the top one's not, more like... The, the later bubble ca- canopy design, which... Exactly. The bubble cam- canopy famously developed by... Grumman Northup. God damn, you're good at this. 
and of course the titular wasp. Uh, creature, yeah, the titular wasp of the book, which is also the nickname of the squadron. So I think it's one of those things where they're trying to be coy and playing with the. Uh, See now, you grew up as an only child. I have several brothers, mm -hmm. so this smacks to me as a situation where they each had a different idea about what the wasp should be, ah. and mom eventually like, like cut the Gordian knot, and they compromised by making putting it, it all in. I mean, that's uh, how my life has turned out. Furthermore, we can see Blake in his very striking flight outfit. He's wearing the wasp helmet, of course. It seems really impractical. It is, but it's kind of like portrayed in the book as being necessary to fly that particular aircraft. Oh yes, the, the, the psionic receptors and the various other doodads and gizmos that are, that are mentioned throughout. I also never really understood his jacket. I mean, I've never seen a sleeveless, a sleeveless flight jacket. Flight it's jacket, like, isn't it cute? It's cute. It's one of those leather tough guy looks and he's got his like darling pretty boy cocky oh, smile yeah. on his face, which is just... Well, uh, that's how we like our, our Blake Whitecock adventures. He's supposed to be just a little bit, a little bit gullible, but also a little... Uh, a little, a little off the cuff a little bit. Yeah. Um, the story, it starts off in merry old England, of course, on the home base of the 579th Squadron. Yeah. Uh, Blake just returning from his flight, essentially so, walking up against the reprimand uh, for the flying that he just did. And the fact that his test plane is still exploding behind him. As you mentioned on a previous episode, I believe any landing that you can walk away from is a good landing. Which I believe you got from this very book. It is mentioned, yes. It's like, it doesn't add the second part. It's like, it's a great one if you can reuse the plane, which is clearly not the case in this uh, situation. No, but you can tell that his commander was, uh, was certainly thinking that. Uh, and he was like, you know, uh, even then his commander, he like, likes to scold him, but you know, the amount of training that goes into getting a pilot, especially of Blake's caliber. Blake is is a polymath and, uh, oh, what do you call it? One of those, a prodigy. Do-it-all, jack-of-all-trades characters. Yeah, the uomo uh, universale. Yeah, the yeah. well-rounded, well classically trained. I think, I don't think he, in any of the books he plays an instrument, but... Oh, he does in my fan fiction. Well, yes, he has a he has a significant player. <laughs> uh, yeah, a flautist with amazing breath control. Yeah, I have a little thing for Blake. He floats it well. Yeah, well, if you've got it, float it. Mm -hmm. So it's no wonder that after he survived this reprimand, he is administratively discharged as a cover for his being brought under the new test program, where he meets his new co-pilot, Helen. Right. And and sort of, sort of love interest. Or at least he fancies her being interested in him. I mean, we probably need to talk about that. Do we think that the writers, Eric, Frank and Russell, were aware of the fantastic subtext that we're setting down here? Because, I, I mean, you've got it too, right? I think it's a classic example of a woman being friendly to a man being mistaken by the man as flirting. This is to us a, a much more familiar trope than it was at the uh, at the time, but certainly with the introduction of Monique, the third uh, member of their uh, their team, who is explicitly mentioned as wearing a black satin shirt. Now, if you have any familiarity with uh, the Hollywood code and uh, the various versions thereof, that was a lesbian signifier. I didn't pick up on that. Here's why I think that a British audience should understand that. Like there were there were certain codes for male friendships that were more than friendships. You know, mm -hmm. young men who who meet at university and they go rowing together mm -hmm. and, uh, yes, you know, and spend time lounging in the grass and reading each other poetry. Yes, yes. Platonic in the way that Plato probably did in his own youth, right? Yeah, if, you, if, you, if you get my drift. Yes, yes, exactly. The friendship between Helen and Monique that almost certainly had a lot more than, than just friendships going on, like they shared a bunk. It wasn't that, that um, in the UK homosexuality was f explicitly forbidden. Yes. But, uh, it only involved males 
because That's nobody right. had the guts to tell Queen Victoria that women could also be gay and <laughs> <laughs> that there were other forms of sodomy that she didn't know about exactly. yet. Exactly. And like, well, maybe she was inconceivable that they would get up to that sort of what, thing. That women desire sex? That's nonsense. Yeah, with each other? <laughs> <laughs> uh, which was very much Blake's approach in his in his enthusiastic innocence as he was as he was courting uh, Helen and befriending Monique because he wanted to be very supportive of Helen's best friend. And of course, they formed a team the, as the new as pilots, well, the, the crew, I should say, not just ah, pilots, yeah, very of good the, uh, of the new Wasp. British ingenuity at its finest. They had a they had a cunning new idea for a new craft. This time, somehow based on bio or, uh, or biotech, organic technological fusion, cybernetics, bio organic, bio wasp insect. No, bio-insect, insect technology. Insect knowledge, well, okay, we're getting... Insect technology. Look, if it was about bees, we could just head straight there with Cy-bees or or bee-borgs. Do you have maybe another book that's about about bees that we can... Well, I do, but it's... I suppose it's not worth... It's about beekeeping and honey and mead making, so... Oh, well, let's put put that on the list for for, for one of these It's very technical. It's not really a a story. So is that one of those things that you wouldn't mind if it it just sort of disappeared in the fireplace and... And I didn't freeze for the... Oh, oh if you okay, never I want guess. to drink any mead in my place again, then... Death first. I will freeze gladly. We're going to take a break here and uh, maybe have a little bit of mead. Sounds like a plan. So what I was saying before we got stuck on this word that we never did figure out for what kind of technology, we call it biotechnology insectoid. In, in proper British fashion, there was, a, there was a fantastic idea for a new technology, but not a fantastic idea about scale, a problem that the Titanic famously ran into as well. So they hedged and built this, this contraption on several different scales, from the microscopic or uh, regular wasp-sized to about the size of a cat, and your little librarianess is sort of gazing at me. There's Fighter for the heat pad. There is hate in her eyes. No, I don't. I don't. I don't dare. So yes, so you have the little uh, drones, the, the little actual wasp-sized things which act as a swarm. But then there's the uh, the more like scary-sized wasp, which is more the size you can see on the cover, which is like kind of like a Yorkshire Terrier-sized wasp. Which ah, would yes. Be like, uh, and those are like. I guess preludes to what we'd now call a drone. It was it was very uh, prescient as much of the science fiction of the of the, of yeah. the era was. It's the remote teleoperation, and this is where the rest of the front cover comes in. Where you've got, of course he's got the fly helmet, which yeah. doubles as the uh, the VR goggles. So they wouldn't they didn't call them that in that they called them telepresence goggles. In the, uh, uh, yes, and it required quite a ridiculous uh, cathode ray tube attachment over the eyes, which would and, be like just like you know beaming yeah, things just, into uh, his eyes, it's, ionized streams of or magnetized or whatever the technology is. And then the remote control wand for conducting the uh, ah, the wasps. Ah, see I thought that it was because the, the large version, uh, which is the version that, that uh, Blake Whitecock flies, which is the size of a, of a jet now because insects uh, they have a certain limitation to how much oxygen they can take yes. in, so when they grow past a certain mm-hmm. size within our uh, uh, current atmosphere, I really love that they delved into the science quite yeah, as much. just put oxygen tanks on it. and just um, Because you only need the oxygen tanks during takeoff and landing phases. At other times, they move so fast that enough air moves through them that they actually... Through their, yeah, through the... Thorax. Brachia, what are the... They've got little Thorax. holes. And make an analogy with like the air intake of uh, fighter jets as well. So kind of have to bring the thing up to speed. And once it's going, then it's fine. But it's just like in the, during the slow-moving period, it can't get enough air in. Much like it. a scramjet. 
Exactly. Yes. See, I know of an Absolutely. aeronautics thing no, as well. Fantastic. <laughs> Where yeah, are you, thank you. Thank you. I am very proud of me. They enter into uh, my favorite part of any Blake Whitecock novel, which is a montage. montage. Yes. yes, exactly. And nobody else does it as well as, as the Blake Whitecock series. The staccato rhythm of these little vignettes, so difficult to render in prose, always yep. thrills and excites me. Yes, the, the grossness of having to deal with the wasp exhaust of the, oh. of the, 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 the <laughs> yeah. training, the romantic invitation flings the looks of desire and disgust between the various main characters that we see. Oh, the bar scene! And it's, it's, again, it's a recurring theme. Blake walks in and he thinks that they're both waiting for him when they're sitting at the table with their cocktail. And he just yeah. swaggers his way in and he... <laughs> Hello, Lerios! Exactly. But all too quickly, the uh, the montage has to give way to the, the very first mission. This is back to the, uh, the, the little flashback with uh, Blake, well, not crashing the jet, but barely bringing it home, which gains yeah. him the reprimand, which means that it's not him who goes out on the first mission, but it's Helen and Monique who get sent out. And, of course, don't return. So, Monique and uh, Helen get sent off on their mission. They're being sent to the Falklands. The Falklands, La yeah. Monique, no, wait, La oh, Islas Malvides, that's the one. Turns out that they have been captured, uh, and that uh, Monique has managed to send out a distress message with one of her wasp swarm thingies. Uh, very ingeniously, uh, as, as, as she's shown repeatedly to be the most uh, ingenious of the three. Now, it is a bit of a shame how much of that message she wastes berating Blake for not being there and not, and not backing them up. Which is, wasn't even his fault, but no, she... It, it wasn't. It was, and well, it was his fault that he... It wasn't his fault. But it was so specific. It. And Blake, I blame you. If we die, please tell our parents we did our best and that it's Blake's fault. Like, I kind of think that she expected to uh, to be released and this was just her fucking with, uh, uh, with Blake again. Mm. Or, you know, maybe, maybe that's just the kind of gal she is. Like, middle finger to the end for someone Maybe she, she wrote, she, to... maybe she wrote a different message for all the wasps and this just happened to be the one that I think she let them go into well, the jet stream. Sure we can figure out how this over. went. And then one of them uh, parasitically bit its way, chewed its way into uh, an albatross because they go far. Yes. Do they land in Britain? Probably. And then the albatross got uh, uh, snatched out of the air by a falcon. Right. Uh, which freed the wasp, which allowed it to uh, fly into the fig. And, no, uh, we're not uh, done yet. We're not done yet. Oh. We can deal with so many steps. Come on. I was going to say, I was going to go fig. And then the, 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 the falcon was captured and domesticated and predated upon by a... What do we call it? Uh, Falcons. Fox wow. snatches falcon. Fox snatches, snatches falcon. raises to be the pet fox of the Q branch. Of the, yes, of the quartermaster who has just given birth to, to several uh, uh, fox kits. One of whom, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm kind of losing it. Look, Q Leslie. Uh, Leslie, the quartermaster or quartermistress. We have no idea because we Leslie. We just don't know. We just don't know because they are never given a pronoun at any point. Like any time anybody references, it, it's almost the quartermaster Leslie or Leslie. So yeah, we we don't know. Turns out we have the main conflict of the book. Which we haven't addressed. Uh, yes, the, uh, the 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 lingering Falklands, the Falklands Cold War. Cold. Yes, uh, the Welsh and the Argentinians, intractable enemies for centuries, grazing rights in the. I mean, the the Welsh and the sheep. They're very. Oh and yes, it, it's been, it's been holding the geopolitical stage hostage for with the tension decades. Even the the nuclear nations are mere pawns between these intractable enemies. The UK is a nuclear nation. The subs are based in Wales, Scotland, right? Oh yes, you're right. No. I think those were kept Scotland, well away from close to Wales. Fam from famously warlike Wales. But we wouldn't want like sea-launched 
leak. That seems like a <laughs> terrible idea. I, uh, I appreciate your attempts at, uh, at comedy on this podcast, but let's not make light of what has been one of the defining conflicts of the, of the late 20th century. The, the shipping through the Saragossa Sea was impossible due to the, the <laughs> continuing warring between the, the Welsh uh, yes, and the Argentinians. Ex exactly. Like, like Buenos yeah. Aires was a no-go area for anybody. Oh, hell no. Only, like, not even James Bond would dare uh, make his way into speaking, Swansea. Speaking of James Bond, what, what do you think are the correlations between Blake Whitecock and James Bond? Do you think that they, they oh, left okay. Ian Fleming might have borrowed from... Well, it doesn't seem likely that Ian Fleming would have been reading uh, Blake Whitecock novels, but the other way around... Yeah, you think it's derivative? I mean, it may have just set the mould for how uh, certain stories are told. And once the, the, the Whitecock novels were mature enough that they entered into actual real shit like the Falklands Cold War, that mm -hmm. during the, uh, the, the childish, innocent boy's adventure, they would have never, they would have never touched upon. Like, no, that's, that's far too angsty and geopolitically no, exactly. important. And that would, like, uh, that's the thing that might happen in the background, but that's not important for boys and girls at the, no, at the teenage they have, age. No, they have just regular old yeah. adventures breaking into the Kremlin or, you know, the, the, the invasion Going of northern on Mongolia. Pony yeah, the low stake shit like that. Yes, there might be like a robber or a thief, which has to be, you know, Scooby Doo level of. Uh... Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then they have friends in the, in, the, in the CIA, you know, minor intelligence agencies, but <clears> never <throat> something as serious as, as, as Los Fuerzas Especiales. So, Blake's flight status is reinstated and he gets to fly the wasp. Finally. Finally. The oxygen tanks are, are, are loaded up. The, uh, uh, the stinger weapon is charged, but it has never yet been tested. Well, not successfully. But well, not successfully, no. Again, remember how his flight status got grounded. And know, I thought that that was actually quite a tender scene when his commander came up to him uh, uh, to wish him luck, the, the very commander that had grounded him in the first place. Because it turns out at this point that the reason that he crashed that plane is the same reason that Helen and Monique went down, namely a weapon that the, uh, that the British were trying to perfect, which now it turns out that the Argentinians already have. Right. Their, uh, their helicopter, as we learn uh, later in the book, it was... Um taken down because the Argentinas developed an internal combustion engine deactivation ray. The ICE ice, iced ray. You know, they, if they just yeah, had they a got day, iced, they, oh, what happened to them? They got iced. They got iced. See, okay, no, that's better. No, but Their they got iced. Engine, internal, internal combustion, combustion engine, engine deactivation. deactivation. They, got they got iced raid. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just a little bit disappointed by the opportunity because if it was the internal combustion engine uh, uh, restriction, like that was an ICER. ICER. We got them hit them with the ICER. Yeah, I think the whole acronymy thing didn't really happen until the 80s. I think they were... We just talked about Ian Fleming. Like you had, you had Schmidt. Like, uh, uh, what else did you have? That's Spectre. not clever. Those aren't clever. Email Even as us. a kid, I thought that was a bullshit acronym. Maybe we have to like put it in the light of the Falkland Cold War that it... Uh, it was a very serious time. It was, and maybe like bring a little bit of light, uh, a bit of levity to, in the to, yeah to the seriousness. I mean, it's like we laugh at the world because otherwise we would cry. Oh, who said that? Me. Just you? Well, I'm sure I got it from someone. Okay, but we're on a we're, we're broadcasting this on a, on a podcast. If we don't attribute, can you imagine what would happen if we if we just used some kind of copyrighted work and just made up stuff about it and we and we didn't acknowledge what it what it actually was and just horribly misrepresented, horribly misattributed it. Maybe didn't even say the name of the person who created it. That would we could never get away with that. People would think that we're just making it up as we're going along. Uh, I, I know we would be ripe for lawsuits. Uh, so so Blake. Gets 
gets in the wasp, the oxygen tanks are loaded up, he flies out. And this is, I think this is an actually interesting part of the story. Because of the oxygen tanks, the, the wasp only has a certain limited lifespan when it's not flying. Whenever it's on the ground, those oxygen tanks are depleting because it, it's not as much as when it's, fly, when it's fly, uh, doing low-level slow flight. I thought that was great. It, that was, is. it, it, it adds such interesting stakes. Once he gets there, once he gets on the ground, there, he has a certain limited amount of time before he has to get the plane, uh, he has to get the, the wasp, wasp yeah, back, on, has to back, get into, back the into the air in order for flying. it to live. So he flies the uh, the plane to Cordoba. I think that's my favorite scene of the book. So when he walks into the casino, oh yeah, Teniente Colonel Jones's casino in Cordoba. What the fuck was up with that name? I have no idea. Is there a Welsher name than Jones? Could he be a defector? Wales is famously cosmopolitan that way. Like, uh, this will be for the historians to correct us on. Maybe that's where the schism between the uh, uh, the Spanish speaking and the and the Welsh speaking world uh, first occurred. Their disagreement over how to pronounce L, yeah. the double L. Yeah, should it be a ya or should it be a Jesus? Jesus. Well, in this case, Yama versus Sama. But anyway, back to the scene. Um, we keep getting distracted by real geopolitical reality. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's funny how that happens. He and swaggers into the the, the in casino, and I think this is where the the relationship between Helen and Monique comes about because because they're sitting at the table, and he just swaggers in and he starts talking to them, and he does not realize he's the third wheel at this point. Well, because no, they're he... they're totally into each other, and they're, uh, they're <laughs> and he's just talking to both of them as if he's well, one of this is main chicken, one of this is side chicken, and he hasn't decided which one is which. Yet. Oh my god, that makes so much sense. In the moment, I was so caught up with the with the story. I mean, they were obviously Teniente. Colonel Jones's prisoners at Absolutely. that point. And I thought that they were just trying to communicate to Blake that everything is not kosher, nothing is as relaxed as you, as you not, thought. And Blake just completely doesn't get it. But if this was also happening at the same time, that they were finally getting closer in their in their own relationship, and then well, in butts Blake Whitecock as he, as he usually that's how does. I, that's how I see the scene. Oh, it's that's like... a lovely way to... <laughs> I mean, it seems, it seems a little bit weird that uh, Helen would be distracted from her, her current mission, but quite in character for Monique. I mean, she's, as the only Welsh character, Monique is a fantastic exemplar of the plain-spokenness and the, and the... And her love of League. I love the casino yes. scene as well. It was, it was very, very Fleming-esque, just Fleming -esque. As, you, yes. as you say. These are the moments where Blake Whitecock just shines. He walks in with, with confidence, brash, cocky, arrogance almost, but it, it kind of pays off in the way that male fantasies very often do. Uh, he is assumed to be a much bigger deal than he, uh, he actually is, but mm -hmm. he creates, and I don't think it's pure accident, he creates enough chaos that opportunities arise. Because he catches the eyes of Louise. Louise, the the smoky femme fatale, the cigarette in the in the in the in the holster. Yeah, she's the one with the martini here, which I like, kind of like. Three olives, did you ah. notice? Ooh, oh. Ooh. there you know things but, are getting serious. I, I do love someone with a taste for gin, so it's uh, a quality that you uh, that you share with her. I mean, have you? Do you like your your martinis dirty? Oh God, no! I hate olives. This is where we meet the villain of the story. So, to who at this will. point is presented as just Teniente Colonel Jones's squeeze or his, uh, uh, his mistress. Which is for like a, a useful role for her to play because it lends her the ear of the... Uh, the Junta. The Junta, that's the one. Which is in charge of uh, Argentina at that point. Louise is just uh, playing uh, Colonel Jonas. Uh, Jones, it's, it's just Jones. It would have... Colonel Jonas, cojonas. Oh, I see what you're doing. Uh, <laughs> 
I'm sure this was intentional by, I think it was one of the, thing, one of the things that Frank put in the book. Oh yeah, that's totally a Frank thing. But, because let's, let's look at it. What are Eric, Frank and Russell famous for? Like Frank, a Spanish speaker, in jail up until I think 1995. I think he was released from uh, Her Majesty's prison about the same time that Mandela was released. Yeah, no, I got that wrong, didn't I? Well, maybe in this universe. He got released before he got imprisoned in this one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sounds, like a good, sounds like a good show. But really, the person pulling the strings is, of course, Louise... Sicone. Sicone? Sicone. That's how you say? Oh, I don't know. This is one of those cases where a author takes a historical character yeah. and places them into a slightly more novelized role. Like fanciful... fanciful yeah, like it okay, might have like happened, the... it could have happened. Maybe we wish it happened like that. Like the uh, Wald, whatever family, the Wald, oh, it's going to kill me. Doc Savage and the, and the Philip Jose Farmer. That's the one. Okay. Yeah, uh, Neil Stevenson has a, hand of, a habit of doing this as well. Yeah, some with fictionalized roles. A proud tradition yes, it's, of bullshit. Yes, yeah. well. Uh, <laughs> now, I thought that the dynamic between the three of them changed a great deal here because mm-hmm. Blake is like being blissfully or blatantly unaware that he is the third wheel in the situation. Or, or uh, the fourth when he, when he you know, encounters, encounters Louise. Louise. Yes. Do you think something was going on between Helen, Monique and Louise? Monique was not as uh, jealous. I think that's a fair way to say mm-hmm. it. Jealous of uh, Louise's attention to uh, toward herself or Helen mm. uh, than she was towards uh, uh, toward Blake. Right, like I yeah. think Monique was was maybe open to let's see where this uh, where this okay. go. Let's see. Right. Mm. Then again, maybe she was putting her uh, her intelligence training to use, and she was trying to seduce uh, Louise oh, as yes. a. Right. I mean, they are still prisoners at this point. Right. So it could be Stockholm syndrome. But anyway, Blake makes his way back to the wasp, where he finds. Another one of Monique's wasp, little wasps who is like, now that she's aware that he's here, yeah. she, she knows how to send her little micro drones out to contact the mothership, so to speak. Yeah, without the enormous delay of transatlantic travel Absolutely. via... Yeah. Yeah. So she can just tell them to home in on that, and he finds him, and he learns about the location of the... The volcanic, volcanic lair, lair, which is always my favorite. Like, every single Blake Whitecock novel has a volcanic lair in it, it somehow. It, it, it's a bit of a trope. It can be an ice volcano. It was a helium volcano that one time, uh, when he returns to his wasp, he is barely in time to save the poor animal from from dying mm. from lack of flying. Essentially, yeah, yeah. The the uh, the oxygen tanks are almost ex- speaking expended. of poor animals. Yeah. The oxygen tanks are almost expended. He manages to get it in the air, but he knows that the next time he lands, that creature is not going to survive. The creature is alive as long as it's in the air, and this places him in a in a bit of a moral dilemma. Like he has to exit his 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 vehicle, which is what the animal is. Right. Yes. But oh, speaking of other animals that yes, we right. hope would run out of air. Oh, but she's been fed now and she was going to be shut up in a minute now. He has to like exit his plane or well, he does his uh, remote telemetry th- uh, thing with this, with the medium sized. And this is a beautiful example of lit- literary symmetry because the very skills that allowed him to uh, survive the crash of his desk plane at the very start, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a very low opening uh, parachute, allow him to exit his wasp mid-flight, send the creature continuing to fly after he's withdrawn the mm-hmm. stinger weapon. Now, exactly how he managed to draw that out. In the, flight? Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like a ball turn. You can kind of crawl through the back thing and then you can dismantle it and pull it in, inwards, I think. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, they really hollowed that wasp out. Well, it's, there's, there's a conduit running underneath. Yeah. You know, it's like a, it's like a, a Jeffrey's uh, tube from Star Trek. Yes, exactly. It's like that. <laughs> That's how it's described in the book. So it's like you can pull it, pull it into... Uh, Although it this being like the RAF, it would probably be a... A Sinjin's or a Murgatroyd's tube. Johnson's tube. Um, Johnson's tube sounds like the urethra, honestly. <laughs> well, 
yes. <laughs> the Johnson's tube, no. yes. <laughs> that every that every naval vehicle has. It's is riddled with Johnson's tubes. Mm. Lots of semen In and all that. <laughs> <laughs> he ejects the the wasp so that it can survive, sending it flying off back to uh, uh, home base in the South Georgia and South Sandwich Islands. Yes. And he skydives into the caldera of the dormant well, it's volcano. It's a very short skydive. It's, it's, it's yeah. a low, low altitude opening, so it's more like I think it's a ten second ride. I mean. Uh, uh, or something, considering the altitude that he dropped out of. And he's still lucky that there were uh, uh, inactive, uh, what was it, magma magma chutes, magma tunnels in the, in, mm-hmm. in the caldera, yes. uh, because he would have smacked onto the ground if it weren't for his ability to navigate right into one of those oh, holes yeah. and make his way down it. Like, oh, that was exciting. Well, he gets caught with the, he gets the, he gets the parachute. He gets the updraft, yeah. Well, he gets caught on a stalactite, so then there's the, the, the typical scene where he has to, like, climb out of his harness and... Yeah, like, well, it's, to, it's like, typical. I mean, it's typical now. Oh, True. You know, it's. Uh, I mean, every every uh, every cliche started out as a good idea, and True. I think that that you know this was the early days of that of that trope. And so you know, he climbs down, showing a lot of other skills that he learned in other Blake Whitecock novels. His mountaineering, his uh, well, actually, just the mountaineering. There's a lot of mountaineering, and sneaking, judo chopping, uh, uh, guards as he as he passes them. I got to say, I was a little bit disappointed that the guards didn't have like a theme. I mean, considering that it was that this book is called The Wasp. Yeah, I kind of expected more colorful villains, but I suppose. That the you know like oh, as if there were bees or as if right. there were you know uh, as if there were monarch butterflies monarch butterflies huh what does that remind me of so I well, guess you know, they want the to be more fair they don't really do insects as much there as we do up here so is that true well, especially in the Falklands is that a fact it's that's in middle, it's mid, it's in the middle of the South Atlantic it's okay. like practically the South Pole at that point okay it's, if you say so then it is true on in the world of our podcast and possibly the real world and we'll find <laughs> out <laughs> big pollination problem. Hence the reliance on uh, animal husbandry over agriculture, oh. uh, exacerbating the conflict with the uh, grazing, the sheep grazing the, the rights. Sheep the grazing rights are extremely, extremely have, yeah. important. <laughs> that was very good. That was really good. I think we're establishing a horrifying but internally consistent world. <laughs> All right. So it comes to the, the big confrontation between uh, uh, Luis Chichone. What did, what did we say? Chichone. 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 I don't know. You're the one who's supposed to know. Uh, in her control room, commanding all of all of her flunkies, there is the uh, the fantastic firefight. Now they hadn't counted on Blake Taking having the stinger, the stinger weapon, weapon, which was the very same internal combustion engine deactivation ray, right. which works just as well on Against firearms. Yeah, exactly. It is combustion also based on yeah, combustion. As long as you, and it's it's a bit awkward as long as you're pointing it at someone and have it turn on. Their guns don't do it. Yeah, and which I thought was. Like reviving the the boyish charm of the the boys' adventure, where yeah. it's it's fairly bloodless and, uh, right. uh, and almost pacifist. You know, it's, it's, it's the guys with the guns holding uh, Helen and Monique uh, under fire, and who now realise and they go, oh hey he's got the thing we can just go yeah more judo chopping because they're very accomplished martial artists uh, and the you can just imagine the the, the skin tight bodysuits in the in the movie adaptation when they're like yes. their way through the uh, now scene. how would we have both of those women played by Anne Hathaway? I was going to say Hale Barry, but... <laughs> Actually, I think Halle Berry would be exemplary as, as Louise, you know, as the, as the, as the oh, vamp. Yes. Okay, well, losing control here a little bit. But yes, so two Anne Hathaways and uh, uh, Halle Berry. Who would you cast as, as, as Blake Whitecock? Don't think it matters. It could be fucking anyone, and it wouldn't matter Chris during Pratt. that confrontation. I mean, he's not British, but... 
Yeah, no, you got me there. <laughs> oh, that would be amazing he, because he's he's so guileless and charming exactly. and <laughs> and and gullible and and confident. Oh, he, he would be fantastic. It's like Chris Pratt as as Blake Whitecock and then uh, uh, Anne Hathaway as two completely different women. <laughs> I don't know that would be funny. I mean, fuck! If anyone could do it, it's, uh, it'd be it's, Anne Hathaway. Be, so, um, yeah, that kind of. It's the usual, it's the, for some reason, the, the, the this or that explodes and oh, the whole place is going to come down, we have to get out right. of here. Uh, they managed yeah, to grab, they, they, managed, managed, they managed to grab one of the Argentinian helicopters. Especially and, now uh, that the larger scale ice, drrr, ice ray is, has been disabled. disabled. Uh, Louise obviously makes her, her scowling escape in, uh, in an escape pod. I'll get you yeah. next time. I think they did a great job. I think this is the first book that we've, that we've treated in this, in this podcast that I unreservedly enjoyed. Oh. Well, that's good to hear, yes. It's not an No disrespect to any chore, of the previous just ones. Just a yeah. chore to no, read them through. Well, it never is. It's no. always a delight to do these podcasts yeah. with you. Well, that, that's, that doesn't mean that the book is any good. Nor was this technically good, but it was certainly... It I was, enjoyed it. I it enjoyed was very... it a great deal. All right, so do you want to give this book a, a, a rating? Now, you've previously done it out of pie. You've done it out of the snake number seven. Uh, what should we do this time? What's a good wasp number? Mm, Six. Waste. Oh. Okay, no, no, okay so that's fine. No, that's fine. Measure it in inches. Measuring in inches with smaller being better or worse. Okay, if it's that, I'll call it a 34-inch waist. It's nothing to be ashamed of, but it's not a 28-inch waist. In that case, my review is going to be nice. Nice. As, as, as waist, as waist, yeah. <laughs> nice. Yes, dividing this book up into its sections, where you have the beginning, which is the head, and the middle, which is the thorax, and the, and the abdomen, and, which is the, the conclusion. Yes. Now, it had a fat-ass abdomen because that... So the, the volcanic layer was fucking awesome, but... I had, think it had five out of seven possible stripes on a wasp's ass. Okay, well, what do we have in store for our okay. readers next we week? We are going to be reviewing a book by Stephanie Meyer, in where a much older man impersonates being a high schooler in order to stalk an underage girl. Ah, uh, the remake of Matilda. No, it's Twilight. <laughs> no, no, no. End of podcast. End of, <laughs> end of friendship. I know it's just a joke, but you would never do this to me if you didn't... And that about covers it. Thank you for joining us at Cover My Ass, where baffling books, fucking baffling books, are reviewed but not read by yours truly. My name is Kathy. And I'm Kay. And we remember... We only judge a book by its cover. See, I think, it's, I think they can hear it better of the music if we say it together. <laughs> Thank you.